0: OPERA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of OPERA and the National Boards. I'm Susan Bigger. So today we're continuing an essential conversation for health systems, and that is about culture. What does an unsafe culture look like, or even a blame culture? Um, Of course, we could have this conversation about many industries or areas of work here in Australia, the culture of politics, for example, has been under the microscope lately. And safe culture is important everywhere. It's important for employees, but in health, there are also patients to consider. So how do we safely and effectively regulate for honest error? And what's a response that keeps patients safe without punishing those who might make a mistake? So I think I've raised plenty of nutty topics for my very able guests. They are Andrea Sutcliffe, who is the Chief Executive and Registrar of the Nursing and Midwifery Council in the UK, Martin Fletcher, who is the CEO of OPERA and, well, full disclosure, my boss, and finally, Adjunct Professor Deborah Picconi, who is the CEO of the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. The commission works to ensure people are kept safe when they receive healthcare and that and to ensure that they receive the healthcare that they should, so it's great to have all three of you here today, Martin and Andrea. Let's start with the regulatory perspective. Andrea, you bring a UK lens to the discussion. So, what brought you to regulation?
1: Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It is an absolute um, delight and honour to be with you today. So, I um, have worked in health and social care all my life, and managing services at a local level. But what I think brought me into regulation is I've always wanted to make a difference, make a difference for people who are using services. And at a national level and in a regulatory body, previously I was the Chief Inspector of Adult Social Care in in England. um, I think you can can make that difference on a much bigger canvas. So we have nearly 745,000 people on our register and they touch the lives of every UK citizen. So it's a huge privilege, but a massive
0: responsibility. Thank you. Um, And Martin, what about you? You also have a background in patient safety, right?
2: That's right, Susan. So uh, in fact, I worked with Andrea in the UK um, over a decade now. So I've been the CEO of APRA for the past 10 years, but prior to uh, taking up this role, I was the chief executive of the National Patient Safety Agency in, in the National Health Service which worked in England and Wales, and among other things, ran a very large error reporting system for the National Health Service and tried to encourage learning about things that went wrong. So um, for me, that background in patient safety has been, I hope, a really good lens to bring to the work of professional regulation, because of course, at the heart of what we do in regulating health professions is is that that focus on patient safety.
0: Martin, maybe we'll continue with you. Um, So as you know, I think we've recently hosted a conversation um, exploring unsafe culture or blame culture in healthcare. Is this something that you have come across in the work that you've done? And can you you describe maybe what that's looked like?
2: Look, I, I have to say, I think Susan, the blame culture is alive and kicking in healthcare as it is in many industries really. And the problem with the blame culture is that it drives problems underground so that if people think they're gonna be punished or blamed when they raise a problem, they're simply not gonna do it. So it's a real problem for healthcare and really for any safety critical industry. If the people at the front line don't feel safe to tell you when they've made a mistake or when something's gone wrong because you lose the opportunity to do something about that before it becomes a bigger problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Andrea, I wonder where have you encountered this kind of culture and why do you think it exists or maybe even thrives there?
1: I think Martin's absolutely right. Um, The blame culture is endemic um, uh, in the um, health and social care system in the UK and I think it is across the world. And the reason why I think is because it's so much easier to blame an individual when something goes wrong than actually to do the hard work of really understanding why something happened and then putting it right. And we operate in a very hierarchical culture. And I think that also impacts on that um, in terms of people being defensive about what they've done, not wanting to um, appear weak in front of others, all of those sorts of really interesting psychological things that are going on as well. Um, But I think that as Martin says, it's something that we've got to address because it absolutely da- it impacts on the care that people receive.
0: And maybe not just um, presumably not just on the care that people receive, but also on practitioners themselves. I completely agree with
1: you because, you know, as as Martin says, you know, it pushes things underground. People are fearful, um, they're not confident in the work that they're doing. They may practice defensively as a consequence of that. And, um, uh, and you know, none of these things help people to feel good about what they do. And we absolutely need our health and social care practitioners to feel good about what they do, because that helps
0: to support better care for the people that they're serving. Deb, let's bring you into the conversation now. I want to ask you a question about how you think a poor or an unsafe culture affects the working environment for practitioners and maybe also for the patients that they treat?
3: I prefer the work that's been done around what's called a just culture, um, uh, which is where we're all held accountable, um, all of us. So I think the history of this no, the no blame thing and why it was commenced, it came out of the UK it was an elegant uh, piece of work when it happened. It was quite forward-thinking because, as both um, Martin and Andrea have said, um, back in those days, if there was an, out, an adverse outcome, we we traditionally looked at the individual that was involved in that. That that was the first place we went to. So I remember, as a nurse, um, all of us remember all the things that we did where things didn't go as expected or we actually hurt or or harmed a patient. And certainly back in those days, they zeroed right in on you, you got called in, you had to explain, it was very uncomfortable. And I remember once I made a series of medication errors, I was on a night duty shift and I managed to give six lots of calciparin to six wrong patients. So, and everyone was off to theater. So I I went around and told all the patients what I'd done and um, they were good about it. It all sort of worked out. But when I sat down with the senior person, uh, she wanted to know what I'd done. And I did what most people do when there are adverse events. I, because I did this thing, which was give IM medications all the time, I was just making shortcuts. And it's when people start the workaround and make the shortcuts, that's when things go wrong. And I remember she said to me, well, why did you do that? And I said, I don't know. I Honestly, I said there were two of us in the medication room. I could have turned around and said, can you check this? Can you come with me? I chose not to do that. And um, so they were getting more and more critical of me. And I said, but look, the other thing I'd point out to you that had two nurses on a night duty ship for 30 really sick patients doesn't work. Now, I wasn't using that as an excuse, but to me, there was a system issue going on here that we could have resolved maybe not do all the meds at six o'clock in the morning when there's only two on, leave it to eight o'clock, you know, when the morning shift had started. So we brought in the idea of no blame to encourage people to participate in reporting adverse events for the purposes of surveillance so we could learn from it. But not only that, so we could actually tell the patient that something had gone wrong because what went with that then was open disclosure. And and so do I think that blame thing is widespread? No, I don't think it is anything like what it was, say, a decade ago, but it's still,
2: it is it is present. We need to pick up on Deb's point about this focus on the just culture. I mean, I think... Concept that I think is really important is the concept of an open and fair culture as well. I think it goes along with the sense of a just culture, and I think Deb's really highlighted the importance of openness with families and and patients and their carers, especially when things go wrong. But I think at its core, if you think about it, what do we need in safe healthcare? We need safety conscious, um, uh, trained and skilled health practitioners at the front line. But we also need them working in well-designed systems of care. We know the sort of pressures there are on frontline staff. I mean, we've seen that writ large in the last 18 months with the impact of the pandemic. Um, you know, it creates a very unsafe environment for people. So I think we've got to be very, um, very clear on how we equip people Um, to to work safely given those sort of pressures, but also having that focus on how we design better systems and processes of care to reduce um, the risk of, of harm to patients.
1: I agree that we should be talking about a just culture. Um, we should be ensuring that we answer the questions that are quite properly raised by people when they experience poor care. and uh, that that's important. And I think the key thing to that in in, in the UK we have um, the duty of candor. So you know actually expecting professionals to speak up, to raise concerns, and to share those appropriately um, with with, their teams, with their managers, and with the people who have been affected by that. And I think kind of encouraging that duty of candor um, actually enables us to get to a just culture because it does enable us to identify the, the, the things that have happened, what we need to do to put them right. And sometimes that will be about an individual's practice. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to take them off the register, because if they have insight and they are able to strengthen their practice to improve what they're doing, then actually that makes things better for them as well as for the
0: um, people that they're caring for. I agree. And you've taken this conversation right where I wanted it to go, because I wanted to ask you the next question, which is how do we regulate then for honest error? And indeed,
1: I mean, I think that what we what we have to do is we we have to be clear about what um, a a regulator's role is in all of this. So we start with setting the standards. What are our expectations of the care that people will be giving and the way that they do that, the code of conduct for us in in terms of the Nursing Midwifery Council? And so the clarity that we have in that um, helps people to see, you know, that they should be uh, evidence based, that they should be keeping up to date, that they should be um, uh, reflecting upon their practice through the revalidation that we're expecting, and they should be um, uh, honest about the things that happen, including when there are mistakes. There's something about the proactive work that we can do through standard setting. And the second thing is what do we do when concerns are raised with us, and I think the important thing that we've got to do there is to take context into account, to truly understand how what happened has happened and where the responsibility lies in terms of the team, the setup, the system, as Martin was talking about earlier, or indeed the individual. And then there's an issue about, and what do we do to put that right? So, um, in the most egregious examples, when people have got no insight and they um, have, you know, they've committed an error, they they think they'd go and do the same thing again, and you know, um, we 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 may well have to take most ultimate sanctions that we have. But in other circumstances, we can identify that people do have insight, they have uh, strengthened their practice, they can continue. In other circumstances, we'll identify that it was actually a systemic error that needs to be resolved by the organization. And so what's incumbent I think upon us as professional regulators, and we've not necessarily all done this in the past, is to go back to employers to actually explain, this is what we can see has been happening and um, actually encourage them to address the problem
0: at the local level. And there's good evidence that what patients and families want is for their complaints and concerns to be managed close to where they happen and to be managed quickly.
2: Do you have any thoughts on that Martin? I think sometimes what we see as an outworking of the blame culture in healthcare is that matters are referred to the regulator when they could be much better dealt with by the employer and the local health service. So I think we do have a role as Andreas saying, in making sure that the role of regulation is clear, but also that employers and others are stepping up at a local level to actually address the concerns um, where, where they're happening. And just to sort of perhaps continue on this theme of honest error and and regulation. I mean, I think by definition as a professional regulator, we are looking at the actions of an individual practitioner. Uh, And as Andrea said, that is in the context of standards and and codes and guidance and the like, which set the requirements for for that, or the expectations of that registered health practitioner. There are three key areas of focus. Obviously the nature of the concern that's being expressed and what's happened. Uh, Andreas highlighted, and I completely agree, the importance of insight. What, what is the person's understanding and insight into what happened? And I think what we often find is the practitioner is often a lot harder on themselves than we might be because they're, you know, they've made an error and they feel really bad about it. But also this question of the context in which they work. And I think this goes back to the question of what is the purpose of regulation? Regulation is not there to punish practitioners. It's there to protect the public. And what our focus always is, is there a gap in, uh, between the inside of that practitioner, the, sort, the context in which they work in terms of the supervision or support for them to practise safely that requires us to do something as a regulator uh, in order to ensure that the risk of harm to future patients is hopefully taken away, but certainly reduced.
3: It, it's just so pleasing to hear that the regulators realise that they're dealing with human beings and that they're no longer going to do what might have happened a decade ago which is just look at what did that person get wrong because you can't look at that anymore you've got to look at well what went wrong and what was the environment of it of going wrong like our regulator in australia is fantastic uh the procedural fairness is fantastic but it still doesn't stop everyone from being scared to death of being referred there and Unfortunately, our systems of governance are still not sophisticated enough. And we find that a lot of people are unfairly referred to the regulator for the job that should be done at the local level. So I remember um, we had to do a big review down in South Australia uh, on a a big chemotherapy error. And people were in my office talking about how we would set up this review, who would sit on the review team. And then I, I turned around to the director general and I said, Don't, aren't you at all worried that we know about this and the patients know nothing? So he said, to me, that was an open disclosure failure. Now, when did the patients find out about it? it happened that very night, they found out about it on the evening news.
2: I think this question of reporting culture is an important part of safety as well, because I think what we've got is, Deb's highlighted that Times as a regulator, and I'm interested in this is Andrea's experience as well, you know, stuff is becoming reported to us that we think could be dealt with by others much more effectively. And we've already the example of local health services dealing with it. And we know, as you've said, Susan, when we talk to consumers, that's what they want. They want local resolution as much as possible. But I I think also we often see examples. uh, uh, So we've got a very current example in Australia of um, some, uh, um, you know, very concerning behavior happening in the cosmetic surgery industry, for example. There's a lot going on um, that no one's ever told us about. Um, Now, maybe, you know, you could be critical of us for, well, why didn't you know? But I think the point there is that I think when you talk about, we need a culture where, where people, are, I think we've still got examples in our in our safety culture of people tolerating or knowing about things, the workarounds, as Deb said, um, that actually should be coming to the regulator. And but equally, I think we've often got stuff coming that we think could be dealt with elsewhere. So I, I don't think the reporting culture is even. I think we've got to really look at it in quite a sort of nuanced way.
1: And if I can just come, come in on the back of that, because I think drawing the dots between something that Deborah said and something that Martin has just said, you know, is us all being clear about what professional regulators are here to do. And as Martin quite rightly says, it's not about punishment. It is about ensuring that people are fit to practice. And as Deborah highlighted, you know, very often when stories get in the press, the media focuses on an individual because, again, that's human. You know, that's what people want to read about. um, And therefore, kind of, you know, it sells the newspapers, gets people uh, onto the TV channels. Um, But actually, you it's always a lot more complex than that. So I think we have to be clear about what we're here to do and how we do it. But we've also got to be very mindful of the impact of that on individuals who may have experienced poor care. So, you know, very often when people um, highlight problems, their fundamental reason for doing it is because they don't want to happen to somebody else like it happened to them or to their loved one. And so demonstrating to people that actually the work that we are doing to enable the individual practitioner and um, to take appropriate accountability to, um, uh, to strengthen their practice, to continue working, you know, is a way of making sure that that happens as well as ensuring that local organizations respond to it appropriately. But sometimes that's not enough for people and we know that and that does get us into some very difficult um, conversations so it's really important that we have appropriate support for people who are engaging with this process um, uh, to explain what it is that we're doing how it's going to work and what the potential outcomes are because I think otherwise we raise expectations of things that may happen which um, we will only disappoint and uh, and that I think is is a real concern Um, but Martin's right focus on getting it right at the local level and we've produced lots of resources um, to help employers to do that because we think that's a way that we can you protect the public in a much more general sense.
0: So that's right the ideal really is often for local resolution. Deb is that what you see in reality? When
3: things go wrong a lot of people just automatically will send the problem off to the regulator when actually it's a performance issue that should be dealt with at the local level now how we're dealing with this in australia is through a unified system of clinical governance uh where where we've mandated a whole series of actions that now have to happen to ensure safe clinical governance uh, for patients Uh, so and And we're really starting to notice the changes on that. But that's only been running now for three years because remembering what we're up against is we're up against, you know, three or four hundred years of medical culture and probably 500 years of nursing culture that are, exactly as Andrea said earlier on, still hierarchical. And there are all these subcultures because all all a culture is, is this is how we do things around here. That's all the culture is.
1: Just, just to pick up on, on, on what Deborah was saying there about you know, the, the problem that you, you say c- certain things ought to happen and, and then they don't, and those, those things would help. So I think that, that that points to a role for professional regulators, which I think is more proactive than it used to be. So, um, so rather than waiting for the problems to happen and then picking them up afterwards, Um, I think that we need to get ourselves into these spaces a little bit more actively. So uh, we've we've been doing two things. And there's one more thing that I'd like us to do. So the first thing that we've been doing is providing direct advice to employers. So we have established an employee, employer liaison service um, linked to employers and you know, really good relationships established between the chief nursing officer of the NHS um, trust, for example, and um, the regulatory advisor talking about you know, what's happening in their local area what they could be referring, what, they, um, what advice we would give about handling particular situations. And that has actually really improved the nature of the referrals that we get from employers. So that's been, that's been very, very positive. Um, the other thing that I think that we, um, we have been trying to do uh, better is working better with the system regulators. So I obviously can hold individual professionals to account but I can't hold the system to account or their employers to account or providers to account but in England the Care Quality Commission can, and in the default administrations, the other quality um, uh, regulators can. So what's important for us is to raise with them what some of the consistent themes are that are coming through. So we're at the moment, we're particularly doing some work on maternity safety um, uh, with the Care Quality Commission in England because of the concerns that we've got there. And the third thing that I think that we could all do um, better, and we, we're on a journey towards this, to be honest, um, is about improving the use of our regulatory insight to influence others and to, to to really bring out some of those themes. I mean, I was reading this morning a report um, about some of the referrals that we've had about social media. Um, you know, there's there's things that we can do, to share back with professionals and with the system about um, proactive things that they can do. So Martin, how do you think
0: that regulators can and should be involved in trying to bring about improvement in this area?
2: I mean, my starting point in this is that we are a better regulator of the professions, the more we work with others, really, that we have to work because no, nobody on their own um, can, you know, do all the things that are needed to improve the safety and quality of healthcare. Um, and I mean, one of our really important partnerships is, is with Deb and the, and the Commission as well. And I really agree with the point Andrea's made about the role of data and insights and analysis. Um, You know, you you see some pretty common themes across um, the stuff we're dealing with, uh, often around communication, record keeping, consent processes. So there's a lot I think we can contribute in terms of those insights that can then be picked up um, by others in the system, as well as you know, in, in a particular circumstance, being very clear on who tells what when and the information flows that might happen. I mean, so, for example, again, uh, I'm sure this has been your experience too, Andrew, where you might have a cluster of concerns coming in a particular service and, you know, you're getting multiple people notified and you're starting to wonder, well, what's going on in this organisation and, you know, who else do we need to talk to who might be able to who bring some different I- insights and analysis? And, 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 and sort of complete the picture. So I do think that working as part of the system. And if I reflect on my decade now with APRA, you know, I think part of what I see has changed in professional regulation is back in the day, uh, a decade ago, it was very much about a matter of, between the practitioner and their board, if you like. And, and often the person raising the concern had no standing. They were just seen as a source of information and, you know, thank you, we've got what we need and now we'll sort it out with this person. Whereas I think the transition, and, and I think it's been the right thing, is to actually see, first of all, the person raising the concern as somebody who is important in the process and needs, needs to understand what's happening and needs to, um, to understand the reasons for regulatory action or not, as the case may be, but also this thing that we've got to work with others in this shared focus on patient safety and, and ultimately healthcare quality.
0: Thanks, Martin. And Andrea, how do you think we move to this safer culture?
1: As Martin quite rightly says, it's about working with other people. So there's a whole system approach to this. Professional regulators are an important part of it, but other people have got to step up to the plate and actually play their part as well. So, um, uh, so whilst you know, I think that we have an important and influential role, we do have to understand that we've got to work with others to make truly, truly make um, a, a just culture uh, and a safety culture um, a, embedded within health and social care from a regulator's point of view, one of the things that we've been trying to talk about is person-centered regulation. And actually in thinking about person-centered regulation, really truly understanding the impact on the people um, who are affected by poor care, who are using services, um, uh, the families of loved ones um, who may have suffered harm, we need to understand what their perspectives are how we can respond to that and how we can treat them with dignity and respect so i think that you um person-centered regulation absolutely has to start with them um uh, as our focus and not as an afterthought as both deborah and martin have have reflected upon as as very often happened but we've also got to be person-centered about the individual practitioner as well and understand. I mean we did some work um, a couple of years ago looking at and, and Deborah I'm sure will be able to um, uh, uh, see that see the truth of this. you know, being a nurse or a midwife it's it's core to people's you new know, being um, as well as their well-being. And if that is threatened, because you've done something wrong or you're being um, uh, referred to your regulator, you know, it has a profound impact on you, whether you've done right, wrong or not. Um, and we need to understand that and we need to respond to that in terms of making sure that we treat um, our uh, professionals on our register with dignity and respect as well. Because if we can get to a place where people see the regulator, their professional regulator, as a force for good, as somebody who actually understands the the issues that they're facing, will respond to those issues appropriately when um, uh, when concerns are referred to us, then we are much more likely to have professionals who are willing to share their concerns, to highlight the difficulties, to um, be candid about the mistakes that they've been making, because they know that if they do come to us, they will actually get a very fair hearing. So I think that you know, think turning this on its head and thinking about you know, it being person-centered in a way that respects both um, the people who are affected uh, by things going wrong, but also the um, uh, practitioners who may have been involved in that, I think will help us an awful long way.
0: Absolutely, very relevant to use the terminology of person-centred care, certainly patients um, well, and practitioners understand that very much. Martin,
2: how about you? Thanks, Susan. I'm going to highlight three things that I think are really important, thinking about safety, culture and healthcare more widely. And uh, I think, first of all, this question of leadership, really. We, we know that if we don't have really good organizational and clinical leadership, we're not going to succeed in terms of improving patient safety and healthcare quality more widely. So I, I think there's a huge leadership piece here. And I know we've got many examples of that that we've got to continue to sort of foster and develop. I think secondly, for me, there's the question of just facing the reality of how we can and do harm patients at times in healthcare. And I think Deb's made the point very powerfully about the importance of data and transparency. I, I remember working in the UK um, uh, with Sir Liam Donaldson, who was the chief, then chief uh, medical officer and a great international leader safety here is to say what are the five most dangerous words in patient safety uh it could not happen here uh you know we've got to address that denial piece um, but we've got to address it i think with data and information as well and then i think just going back to this question of the role of the regulator and i really want to pick up on andrea's point and sort of make a positive comment i mean we we, we work with Uh, some of the most trusted professions in in Australia. And I think probably it's not dissimilar in the UK. Whenever we look at who are the most trusted professions, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, dentists, um, paramedics, all of whom are regulated professions in Australia. Uh, So I think we've got to have that focus on, you know, yes, regulation has to deal with that small number who are perhaps the bad apples, you know, and we do need to deal with them and we need to deal with them well. But We've also got to see how regulation can continue to build and support that professionalism and trust of the community in these professions, um, which in the vast majority of cases is well-placed trust.
0: So Deb, looking to the future, what do you think are a few focus areas that could really make a difference for safer healthcare?
3: Just the charter of healthcare rights is incredibly important. So that a person knows what their rights are and their family knows when they attend a place, informed consent is an area that we're very poor on, um, not just in Australia, but elsewhere, certainly in advanced health systems, uh, and health literacy, and then just the patient's general uh, capacity. In terms of the regulator, I just loved hearing what Andrea and Martin are saying, humanising the sort of regulation uh, that we need to do. And then, of course, the other thing is people have got to be really certain that you guys are showing really fair procedural fairness. And I think we do.
0: As we draw this conversation to a close, I I really want to thank my guests today, Andrea Sutcliffe, Deb Piconi and Martin Fletcher. I think that I think you've really highlighted, I suppose, the tricky balance of ensuring that patients and families are heard and feel that there's justice when there is harm done. But then at the same time, we find ways of doing that without a focus on blame uh, for the sake of our health workforce and probably really for the sake of our patients and families as well. So thank you for your thoughtful reflections and your wisdom and your commitment to working towards safer cultures in healthcare. Thank you very much.
2: It's been fantastic. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much,
1: Susan. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of this incredibly rich uh, conversation.
0: And to our listeners, thank you for listening to Taking Care. Uh, Please don't forget to find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might find your podcasts by searching for Taking Care. Uh, You can subscribe or you can review. And we also have a growing back catalogue that you might be interested in checking out. So if you have any feedback or ideas for episodes, please get in touch. My writings at communications at opera.gov.au, and we'll see you next time.